Welcome to the weekly message from Albert Park Baptist Church, a community of believers seeking to love God, love one another and love our neighbourhood right in the heart of Melbourne. We hope you find today's message inspiring. Well, you came back after the last time. You're very brave people and I'm very grateful because if you hadn't come, it would be a very boring morning today. Really precious to be with you. Oh, thank you. I dropped those everywhere. You're a very kind man. In fact, I spent a long time looking for them before I left home this morning. And here they were, right in the Baptist Church in Albert Park. Lovely to bump into the Addisons this morning. Old friends and wonderful people. And if you don't go to their training next week, I'll come to your house and talk to you because uh, they'll be very precious and a great gift to you as they share what they have in leadership. They're wonderful people. And I couldn't help but think also the text you used this morning just reminded me of one of the most extraordinary experiences in our whole church life, which goes right into the text of what we're going to look uh, to today. I think back to an extraordinary moment in our church of giving. That, um, that weekend, the weekend before, we had Dr. Craig Blomberg, who is one of the um, eminent New Testament scholars and one of those who uh, is involved in updating the NIV translation of the Bible from time to time. And he had just written a book uh, based on Proverbs from the very text that you had written. Uh, don't give me too much, don't give me too little. And he preached on that that weekend and we were about to take up an offering for the purchase of property next door on the following weekend. And uh, during that week, um, we heard that some of our friends in Indonesia were being persecuted to the point of death. Their houses were being burned down, 800 of them uh, were clustered together on a mountain trying to protect themselves. And as we came up to that offering, I had this, uh, this feeling that God wanted us to give the offering away. And when you've been spent five weeks uh, posturing your church to raise funds to purchase property, and then you come up with the plan of giving it away, that can upset some people. And I had some business people come to my house on the Saturday morning after I unveiled the, the, the thought that I felt God was calling us to serve these people rather than ourselves. And they were upset that we would uh, have changed plans. But the next day, I gathered my eldership together that Saturday night and every last one of them uh, said, let's just give it away. And the next day was the most extraordinary day I have ever sat in church. I never watched men sob openly in church like I did that day as I invited them to make their sacrifice and to divest ourselves of it and it was the largest offering we ever took up in our church's experience we raised $270,000 that day and bought a mountain in Indonesia and I got to meet some of those people where they were resettled some time afterwards but what uh, was really helpful was that about a month later, the council 
refused to allow us to purchase the land and add it to our own. So it saved me from looking foolish. Because <laughs> we could have taken up an offering, bought land and not been able to use it. And uh, so it saved my bacon. And that, you got all that for free this morning. I just was reminded by everything that's happening this morning. Your preparedness today to meet and talk about how you're going to bless other people. The choice of your text, which just happened to be the very text that Craig Blomberg preached the weekend before. And now I want to talk to you about the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 15 is probably one of the most wonderful and encouraging of all the chapters in the New Testament because it's about God's love for lost people, God's passion for lost people. And he told the parable, uh, Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep. He'd prefer to leave 99 fat found ones to go look for one lost one because the fat found ones are already doing okay. And uh, it's not what the normal shepherd would do. The normal shepherd would stick with the big number, but Jesus is passionate about lost people. Then the woman with the lost coin um, put the church in charge of a woman. She'd come up with a strategy, and uh, it would be a thorough one because women know how to clean, they know how to find things. Women, men can't find anything. And uh, she, when she found it, there's more excitement in heaven over a lost thing found than there is over found things that are happily worshipping. Not that he doesn't, isn't excited about us. It's just there's some things that excite God even more. Then he talked about the two lost sons, one who was lost in the house, one who was lost outside of the house, and the passionate and extravagant embracing of a son who has squandered dad's superannuation and to receive him back and throw a party and then help the disgruntled son to appreciate that he really has everything. And uh, therefore the, the celebration is highly appropriate. At this point Jesus turns because he's got something to say to his disciples. He spoke that par those parables to people who didn't understand. The scribes and Pharisees had uh, gathered to ask Jesus how come you devote time, attention, passion and kindness to people that you really shouldn't even be associating with. And so Jesus had to tell them the three stories about lost things. But now the Bible says, now Jesus told his disciples. He now turns to those who do know him, to those who do trust him, to those who at least have some understanding of God's passion for lost things. And he says, I've got a story for you too. There was a rich young, sorry, rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Wants to tell us a story about a manager. A story about stewardship. It's often the situation in life that one person owns and another person manages. Whenever I get on an aeroplane, I, I bump into the steward, they, uh, the airline steward. She doesn't own the plane, she just helps get people on and off. And that's what managers do. Good managers or good stewards, they make decisions on behalf of an owner. Uh, they're not the owner. They understand the intention and the purpose of the owner 
And as a result, the way they're supposed to do their job is to cooperate with the owner's original plans. And the thing about being a steward or being an administrator is that you really do have significant power. You get to make real decisions. You have a real steering wheel. Um, I'm old enough to remember baby seats that were not very safe at all. They used to hook them under the back seat and put the baby in it and they put a little steering wheel on the kid's seat so that the kid could turn while daddy was driving. Not very safe at all. That steering wheel was not actually connected to anything in the car so the kid could turn it any way they liked and everyone would be okay as long as daddy was okay. That's not the steering wheel God's put in your hand. God has put a real steering wheel in your hands. You get to make real decisions and they have real consequences. But you're still not the owner. And that's what a steward or a manager is able to do. He makes decisions on behalf of the owner and they actually make a significant difference. Uh, the reality is, of course, however, that every steward ultimately has to render an account. You, you're kind of accountable for the way you've done your job. Uh, your choices in your performance gets scrutinised. The reality is that we, we often don't think of ourselves as stewards. Um, and yet one of the most critical ideas that, that needs to be planted clearly in the thought processes of a follower of Jesus is that I am in partnership with God. Um, I'm not a disconnected child who can turn the steering wheel anywhere I like and it has no outcome on uh, daddy's or, get, or God's purposes. Uh, the, the, rea the reality is we love to think of ourselves as owners, but we need to understand we're actually stewards. I, I love to think I own golf clubs. I've got golf clubs, and sometimes people say, can I have a go of your one wood? And I have to say to them, no, no, you can't, because that's my one wood, and I don't trust what you will do with it if I was to let you swing my club. You may damage my club. But, you know, there are... There are people who know where my clubs are and if I was to die tonight, I know an individual who will go straight to my house or to the boot of my car. He will take out my golf clubs and he'll do things with them that I would never have permitted if I was alive. Um, the thing is I won't be able to stop him because actually I'm not an owner. Uh, do you think you own anything? Well, I know we, I know we understand uh, that in some ways we own. But God says, if you really own it, let me see you get it off the planet. Let me see you get it off the planet. If you die and it remains and then other people just distribute it and play with it once you're gone, it demonstrates you were never really an owner. You just had it for a period of time. No matter what it is, you can't take it with you. And the reality is that there's so there is someone who is an owner. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and everything that is in it. There really is an owner. Um, the fact is, I'm just not an owner. Um, I'm in charge of stuff. I've got a car, I've got a house, I've got some golf clubs. But I'm only in charge of it for a period of time. And the fact is, my stewardship is going to end. It's uh, something that has been very clear to me. I'm just wondering um, if it's always clear to all of us, it's helpful to get old because you realise this isn't going on forever. And one day I will render an account for my stewardship and uh, that's a really helpful thought to have. We are all, every last one of us, a steward 
that has been given responsibility, but we are accountable to the owner. And this is exactly where the story goes. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, so he called him in. And he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you're not going to manage any longer. His management's about to terminate. I'm 74 years old. Um, my dad made it to 76, my grandpa to 75, so I'm kind of getting nearer to the use-by date, the day in which my management will terminate. And uh, the reality is... I too will find that my stewardship will terminate. Well, he's about to be terminated. He says, give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. Brilliant. So that when I lose my job here... People will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. It's kind of how stewardship works. The owner obviously owns land and he's rented it out to people who use the land and now they're going to pay. They're going to pay what they owe to the owner and the steward is the one who's in charge of uh, collecting the funds and distributing it and making sure that the master's land is being appropriately managed. Well, he's about to use his stewardship in a very interesting manner. He says, how much do you owe my master? Oh, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. He said, the manager said, what do you say? We take the bill and we turn it into 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe my master. He said, a thousand bushels of wheat. He said, let's take your bill and let's make it 800. Sounds like a, a, a shifty deal to me, and it is. He's described in the words of Jesus as a dishonest steward. And I'm fascinated, as you read the commentaries on this, how uh, commentators puzzle over how, how is it that uh, a dishonest steward uh, can be used as a good example and they kind of um, do some contortions to try to get uh, the guy to not be a crook, but the fact is he's a crook. He's doing the wrong thing. Um, commentaries notwithstanding, Jesus says the dude is a crook. He's a dishonest steward. But he's using the authority he's been given in a dishonest way. But the outcome is fascinating. Just imagine those of us who still have a mortgage. If the dude down at the ING bank or the NAB or the COM, doesn't matter where you got your, your house, he says, look, come on in. I'd like to talk to you about uh, your mortgage. And you sit down and you're a bit concerned because they're going to put the interest rates up again. And he says, look, I've got good news for you. Um, how much uh, are you paying on your mortgage? How much do you owe? He says, oh, I uh, owe 500,000. He says, what do you say we mark that down to 350? Would that work for you? Now, I need you to know that you would leave the bank that day deeply appreciative of both the bank you go to and uh, the manager behind the desk that just did you the best favour in your life. So the next day, Monday morning, um, 
the manager's going to have to turn up with the keys to the car and the keys to the holiday house and all the account books and lay them down on the owner's desk. And as he does, the owner is kind of interested. He says, you know, it's a funny thing. I was coming in here today and that, that man who, who works the olive grove ran up to me and planted a big kiss right on the side of my face. He said, Mwah, you must be the best owner in the universe. Thank you so much. He said, I was puzzled by that because he's never treated me that way before. And as I was just about to come in through the door, that farmer that kind of grows wheat on my land, it's funny, he ran up to me, planted a kiss on the other thing. He said, you must be the best owner in the world. And it was only when the owner sat down later on with his account books that he began to realise what had happened. Because outside the establishment, both the man who was working the olive grove and the man who was growing the wheat are hugging his former steward as well. Because in one fell swoop, he managed to turn the owner into the best, most wonderful owner in the entire world and turn himself, ingratiate himself to the very people who were supposed to be managing a little more ethically. And when the owner figured out what he'd done, all he could do was laugh. Listen to what Jesus says. And the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He realised he had just a window of opportunity. He'd taken his window of opportunity. He'd used his authority to make uh, to win friends, but not only for himself, but also for his master. And the conclusion Jesus draws is this. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And I want to tell you something. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And I, I know one of the challenges with this passage is, uh, Al, we heard you talk last time and you talked about how God loved people and how wonderful and gracious he is and it was wonderful. And now I turn up the second time and you're talking about money. Yep, money. Churches, they're always talking about money. No, they're not always talking about money, but if they don't talk about it when Jesus does, then they're not faithful stewards themselves. It's a funny thing the way people react when finances are discussed in God's house. We have a reaction to it we don't have in any other place in the world. I have never heard anyone get up walking out of a restaurant staggered that at the end of the meal there was a responsibility to pay the bill and walk out of the restaurant saying, you know what, they're only in that for the money. I'll never go back to that restaurant again. Good Lord, they're in, the, they're, they're in this for the money. <laughs> but come to church and someone talks about a stewardship responsibility and people get offended. Oh, talking about money. No, not always, but sometimes. Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master, said to his disciples, if you understand God's passion for lost people, you've got to realise the connection it has to how you handle your stewardship in this life. Because every one of us have a window of opportunity of some kind that we could be winning friends for eternity 
by the, the way we manage our stuff. And one of the things you will do today is you will distribute finances to people you will never meet. But something will happen in their world that would never happen if you didn't turn your steering wheel this afternoon and make a decision about how to manage the material stuff of this life because it makes a difference. It's how life works. And that's what Jesus was saying. He said that the manager in Jesus' story, Jesus manufactured this story, although it's probably had many worldly examples. He, he made this up. And then Jesus put these words in his mouth. He sure knows how life works. He commended him saying, well, at least he understands how life works. And if only my people understood how life works, that their finances can change the, the, the destiny. He uses it, puts it this way. Use your worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I will meet people in eternity that lived on that mountain in Indonesia. I met a few of them when I was there some years ago. They cried. They said, you gave us a home. We were in peril for our lives. And you bought us a mountain and gave us a home. Um, as I was in prayer that Saturday, trying to decide, was this the appropriate move to make? to give away our offering and not buy the land next door. I got on my knees and have you ever tried to hear God and you just wonder what God is really wanting to say? Uh, hearing God's not as easy as you wish it was cracked up to be. You can hear God in many ways. Um, but that, that day as I cried and just lay on the floor saying to God, what do you want me to do? in ways I can't explain to you how I knew what God was saying, but I knew what he was saying, and this is what he was saying. Alan, every morning in Indonesia, my people are crying out to me, saying, help us, help us, and I need you to be that help. And as that clarified in my conscience, he needs me to be his help. I said to Jesus, you can have, you can have anything you want. Uh, you, you ask and it's all yours. We, we own nothing. And uh, it's all yours. Jesus said this. Use wealth. Use stuff to win people for eternity. It's not always money. Sometimes it's your skills. Um, as Cameron was saying before, you know, there's ways to serve. Use your skills. Sometimes it's stuff you own and he doesn't want you to necessarily give it away. He just wants you to use it better. Um, I was a high school teacher and I owned a, a house and I was trying to find a house that I could use for a drop-in centre. And my sister gave me a prophecy. She said, Alan, the Lord spoke to me in prayer this morning and he said to me, tell Alan, why is he looking for a house when he already has one? And I just never thought of that. I never thought to use my own house as a drop-in centre. And I thought, well, of course. And the next week I opened my house and out of that, I'm in ministry today because years ago I just decided to use my house as a drop-in centre. And the first night, 35 kids turned up. I gave some invitations in a typing class. 35 kids turned up. 
And for the next five years, I ran what we called Open House, and I led dozens of kids to Jesus, and they were baptised in my backyard. Um, Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends. We used our house. Then as we were getting our, uh, having our open house going, I had a friend of mine who was a Christadelphian. His, his, his theology wasn't great, but his love for Jesus was wonderful. And he had a Peugeot, and he sold his Peugeot, and he bought himself a 12-seater transit bus. And he turned up on the next Friday night and he said, I'll help you get these kids home because the parents would all drop them off and we were in Churnside Park, no public transport, and we would be out there trying to get kids home out in the hills of, of uh, the Dandenongs there till one o'clock in the morning. And uh, that young man, that, my friend, Graham Drake was his name, his act of stewardship... The Peugeot holds five, the transit bus holds 12. Who wants to drive a transit bus instead of a Peugeot? But it was his decision, that's his stewardship. The next thing, you know, I realised I've got all this camera equipment and I don't really use it much. So I sold all, the transit, I sold all of my camera equipment and I bought a transit bus. Now we had two transit buses and together we could, you've got no, do you know how many kids you can get in a transit bus? Oh, it's a lot more than... Well, I can tell you that. <laughs> and till, till late at night, we'd be drip, dropping kids off in the, high, in the area. We had a revival in our high school. And at least part of it was simply because we used our stuff to win friends for eternity. Jesus said, would you just use your stuff? You got a dog? Go meet people with your dog. I mean, your dog can win people to Jesus. Um, if you give him a chance. Jesus said, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for eternity. Principle number one. Here's principle number two. Starts in verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And I've often contemplated, Lord, what does that mean in terms of your eternal purposes in our life? And I wish I could explain it better. But in this life, your decisions are probationary. Your decisions in this life have an impact that qualify you for stuff beyond this life. See, when, when you get a license here, they give you a probationary license. And if you can handle the probationary license, they give you a full one. And Jesus is saying, do you understand that what is going on in the material world with your body and with your wealth and with your opportunities is building something in here that will continue beyond this life? Christ in you is the only thing you will carry out of this life into eternity. What Christ has done in you in expanding his character and his person in you is all you will carry out. Your body will die. That new creation will live on. But what has it become? What have you done with the probationary opportunity to not only manage your body, but a material world in which you express the will of the owner of everything. 
Jesus, help me use my opportunities after preaching to other people. Jesus said, it's probationary. Don't think this is irrelevant. Don't think this is a, this is a, a small issue because every time you act in a material world in obedience and, in, and as part of the, a partnership with God, something is being built in your new creation, in your inner being. It's Christ in you is the only thing that you will carry out of this world. So uh, don't leave it undeveloped. It's called sanctification. Grow, grow, exercise. Let the Addisons expand your capacity to serve and to carry the grace of God because that's all you'll leave this planet with. Third principle Jesus wants to draw from his story is this one, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, this issue of finances is a war zone. Um, it is a war zone. Whose ownership will you serve? Who will you, who will you serve? Now, God doesn't want all your donuts. God's not saying, uh, I want you to live in poverty. In fact, we get a, a, a clear principle from both gen, from Genesis, where Abraham, without any compulsion, without any direction, without any law, when he met the first priest in the Bible, he laid a tithe at his feet. And later on in the book of Hebrews, they will use that experience to say that when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the Levites were in his body at that time tithing to Melchizedek and Jesus is the picture of, new, of, of Melchizedek um, in the New Testament. Melchizedek's the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. They went and laid a, a tithe of everything at, those, at his feet under the law. It was, that was compulsory. But then later on in the book of Romans, sorry, the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul will now pick up on that law and he'll read this. And this is one, another one of those transforming experiences for our church. It was a transforming experience when we realised what tithing is supposed to be used for. Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about missions, missionaries, pastors, uh, anybody who has been released to serve God somewhere in this world. And what Paul does is he reverts back to the law. We're not under the law. No, Paul knew that. He's not a fool. But he also knew that the law reveals the way God thinks. And so he, he says this. Not, one, not Romans, just because you said it doesn't mean you need to look it up. You need to look up 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this is on mere human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is most concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. 
If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support, it was a right of support, shouldn't we have it all the more? But I didn't use my right. On the contrary, I'd put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. But now he reverts again to the Old Testament. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. That is a reference to Numbers 18 and the Old Testament principle of, a, of 11 tribes tithing that God could release into his full-time service a group of people. God's got a passion to release people into service. And they can do it voluntarily. Some have to be released and they've got to be salaried because they've got to live. And now Jesus draws a conclusion from that. By the same principle, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. By the same principle. What principle? The principle of people setting aside uh, a tithe of their, of their, of their prosperity in order to release a group of people who would serve. The Bible says in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians 9, in, by the same principle, the Lord has commanded. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. He's looking for stewards who understand his heart and his passion for lost people all over the world and say to him as they take the steering wheel of their life, Lord, I am with you, I am for you, I partner with you for the ministry of the gospel of God. And Jesus said, it's a war zone. Who will you serve? Because as you serve God in various ways of stewardship, you lean into the kingdom of heaven and say, this is my future, my destiny and my life. And he invites you to grow in you, Christ in you, through every act of service and obedience in Jesus' name. Now, you're lucky we don't go on with Luke 15 today because the Bible records that at the end of that little talk that Jesus gave on stewardship, there were some people who thought it was pretty funny. In fact, the Bible says this, the Pharisees who loved their money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. That's not a smart move. But this is sometimes the reaction of people when they hear about stewardship in the context of God's passion for lost people. They say, it's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that with my property, my money, my opportunities in life. So you're fortunate you don't get to hear the next parable because now comes a parable directed to those who thought stewardship was an optional extra, had nothing to do with discipleship. Now you get the rich man and Lazarus and you're lucky you don't hear it today because I got a message on that one too. It's amazing the difference that wealthy people can make. And we, and we are wealthy. By any, uh, by any measure, we are wealthy people. Now, I know all of our stations are different. There'll be some here who are retired and your income is lower. There'll be single mums, possibly, almost certainly, in any church today, single mums who don't have the same financial capacity. There'll be others whose finances are way more than they possibly need. And, and, and in the midst of all of that, we, we recognise you can't expect everybody to be doing exactly the same thing. But we need to appreciate that 
the power of generosity is absolutely profound in changing people's perspective of God's heart towards them. In international terms, Australia is relatively generous. Denmark is the most generous country in the world, giving about 1% of their GDP to the poorer nations of the world. Australia, we're miserable. We're down about 0.3% of our GDP. But you know, um, if I, I haven't updated these figures from the last time I checked them, but let me tell you how Australians spend some of their money. 5.6 billion on confectionery. 7.8 billion just on feeding our pets. 37 billion on fast foods. 22 billion on our entertainment. One and a half billion on stereos, more than a billion dollars a year on television sets. Australia, we can spend about 17% of our income on food and live well. Go to Tanzania or Sudan and 60 to 70 to 80% of people's income is just keeping body and soul together. We spent $7.4 billion on cigarettes and if all the smokers in Australia just decided to smoke one cigarette less today. You could, uh, you could provide uh, 50,000 African kids with food for a whole year. Just, that's what wealthy people do. The power of a choice. Just say, I'll just smoke one less cigarette and I'll, 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 I'll give that away to clean water for Africa. It's extraordinary, the power we have. We spent $827 million on weight loss programs. That money could supply uh, seeds and tools for 20 million needy families throughout the world. We spent $1,200 per head on gambling. I don't know if it offends you as much as it offends me. I think I hate nothing more than the torrent of gambling ads that just pour out through our television set. Absolutely outrageous. The poverty through this absolute through this nonsense, 1,200 a year on, uh, per head on gambling, and yet for 20 dollars a head we could provide clean water for millions and millions of people. For one out of every five deaths under five years of age is simply the lack of clean water. The power of people to make decisions for eternity with what we have. Let me sing a little song to you. Now, if the piano was open, I'd play it and sing it. You're lucky it's not open. When I was, um, some years ago in, in church, we, there was a chorus we sang a lot. It was a beautiful chorus. Some of you may have never heard this before. It goes like this. For he is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. If you know it, sing with me. For he is Lord. He is Lord. 
He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a man that once bought an apartment. And he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to rent it out. And I'll just come collect the rent each day. So he bought an apartment and rented it out to this little family and came along at the end of the first month to collect his rent, knocked on the door. Man came to the door, opened the door, and he said, um, hello. He said, I'm the owner. He said, oh, you're the owner. He said, wonderful. He said, I've got something for you. Took a step back and began to sing. You are the owner. You are the owner. You have bought this apartment. You are the owner. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that you are the owner. Shut the door and went inside. The owner stood there for a moment and he said, that's very interesting. I don't think I've ever seen that before in my entire life. Maybe what he intends to do is pay two months' rent next month. So he came back at the end of the second month knocked on the door. Man opened the door. Sweetheart, he said, it's the owner. Out came the wife and two little kids and in four-part harmony they begin to sing. You are the owner. You are the owner. You are the owner. You are the Do the whole thing. Shut the door and go inside. He said, that's amazing. Maybe they're going to give me three months' rent next month. Turns up at the end of the third month, knocks on the door. Man opens the door. It's the owner. From everywhere the neighbours come. A 60-part orchestra, a choir standing all along the fence. And together they begin, you are the owner. You are the owner. There will come a point when he'll say, shut up. And show me the money. There will come a moment in your life too where Jesus will say, I am worth more than a song. Thank you. Thank you for the worship. It, it did you more good than it did me, but thank you. We are in partnership. I'd like to see a response that matches your worship because I care for lost people. Father, today I pray for this church. I thank you for, the, for its heart and I thank you for the passion it has to be part of a ministry of life in a dying world. I pray for everyone that becomes part of this church that as they do, they will embrace their call to steward everything they have in ways that show the life of heaven. And I pray in Jesus' name that this day, where there are hearts that needed to hear this message and make an adjustment, that your Holy Spirit will show them what to do next. In Jesus' name, amen. If today's message evoked anything in you and you'd like to talk or pray with one of our pastors, please get in touch by phone or email. 
All of our details can be found at albertpark.org.au. We worship together in person 10am every Sunday at 115 Kerford Road, Albert Park. All are welcome. We look forward to seeing you soon.